0: The MLS season concluded with a former New York City champion igniting a social media frenzy with his slick game-winning assist in the final. And one of the most respected writers in our game who was there, he's going to come and share some of the stories about his experience on the latest NYCFC Views. Turn up your volume because you're about to listen to the Sick, Podcast, the Sick Podcast.
1: NYCFC Views.
0: Collins approaches the shot and New York City wins the first MLS Cup on their first try. And they're going crazy.
1: <laughs> New York City is el campeón The major league soccer,
0: the sickest New York City FC podcast. It's going to be sick. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Glenn Crooks. Uh, Quick update on Roberto Abramowitz, my co-host, who underwent quadruple bypass surgery. Now, three weeks ago, uh, his exact words, feeling better and stronger than last week. He's getting his appetite back. Uh, That's been difficult for him, but uh, he looks better, sounds better, and uh, feels better. I know he appreciates all all the outreach. Well, I know we watched this one. Columbus Crew uh, winning their match on Saturday night against LAFC, the defending MLS Cup champions, in the final. And the thing I I, I would say uh, at the top here about this game is that statistics, in particular of late, possession statistics, don't always... Tell the tale. But in this case, they very much did. Columbus had 62% of the ball, but it's what they did in possession that really stood out. And you hear the words possession with a purpose, and that was personified by Crew SC. All right, time to welcome in a guy who he knows how to share his story. I've been reading him for years. He's one of our top writers here on the American Game. Uh, you can read most of his material on uh, MLSsoccer.com. He was at Lower.com uh, Stadium uh, for this match and uh, also for the build-up to it as well. Let's say hello to Charles Bohm. Charles, How what's happening? Hey, man. Very, very glad to be here with you, Glenn. Well, thank you so much. And I, and even as of today, it's Tuesday, and more things are coming out uh, around MLS and around this game. And I just, and I haven't had a chance to read it, but I know you just published uh, late on Monday uh, and it was entitled, It Takes a Village, talking about Crew SC. So it really is sort of a wonderful, I don't want to call it a fairy tale, that's too trite, but it has that kind of feel, doesn't it?
1: It does, it does. And and for for more than one context, you know, you have a team that um, all season and, and, and in the first year of their head coach's tenure, um, sort of thumb their nose at, at all the sort of conventions that MLS has sort of been uh, dominated by in terms of tactics and game models over the last few years. Uh, they want the ball and they want to beat you with the ball. They don't care if they, if they concede goals every once in a while as a result. Uh, Wilfred Nancy, I find one of the most fascinating head coaches in the league right now and beyond for that matter. And I have a feeling he, he will be beyond this league before too long. Uh, and, and to do uh, to do everything that he did and his team achieved in this tournament in this final in these playoffs in the season for a club and a city that has been through uh, what the Columbus crew community has been through uh, it was just five years ago that they uh, they saved their team from relocation to Austin and now they they've won their second trophy in that time and it's um, when you go there and I recommend to anyone who who uh, enjoys soccer in this country or this continent Go catch a game in Columbus if you can, because the
0: relationship between the club and
1: the fans there, I'd say, is is special because of what they've they've gone
0: through and achieved together. And it's a cool city, you know. It's got more than I think people outside of Columbus uh, gives it uh, credit to. Uh, you you're, you were there. Whoop! I just pulled off my mic, but you were there several several days before the game uh, for the buildup of all this. And you know, when you go out on the town, you know, it's it's pretty artsy, right? It is, and it's a it's the fastest growing
1: uh, metropolitan area in the Midwest. I think this is part of the the backstory of of save the crew and the revitalization of the club under new ownership that gets lost easily if you're not in the city. But this was once the quintessential small market MLS team. Uh, you know, the, their supporters decades ago uh, coined the, the the catchphrase "massive" as sort of a self deprecating um, tagline to underline, you know, just how not massive they were compared to New York and LA and Chicago and, and the bigger markets around the league. And now they're, you know, they've, they've gained half a million people uh, in population since the turn of the century. It's a, a, a thriving economy in addition to being a state capital and a college town. And, uh, and the crew are now, I'd say, closer to the heart of the Columbus identity than they ever have been because there's just so much pride in, in what they've achieved on and off the field.
0: And then there's this guy Wilfred Nancy, who really uh, his grew up as a coach in Montreal Academy system, first team assistant, and then getting the job as the head coach when Thierry Henry left, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, before the season started. And it's it's really there are so many fascinating tales to this. Joey Saputo, I mean, it, it's pretty well known that you know he's got that Jerry Jones sort of ownership personality and and indeed, um, it's, it's quite possible he just chased Wilfred out of town because of that incident in the summer when he came in the locker room after a game and, and, and gave players uh, a hard time loudly, which is totally against Wilfred's, the way he wants to do things. Because this is what I'm so impressed with him, is that you hear coaches talk about, it's okay to make a mistake. Uh, you're going to build off of that. You're going to develop from failing. He um, he abides by that, doesn't he? I mean, he takes it to eleven. <laughs> it's it, it, some of the
1: things he says uh, in front of the microphone, you know, before and after games are are particularly striking to me because these are the things that coaches, it, sort of the, the hard knocks of the of the sport, sort of teach coaches not to do this, right? I mean, even his predecessor in Columbus, Caleb Porter, who. Uh, Won an NCAA national championship at Akron with the what what there was called at the time the death by a thousand passes approach right they they love to have the ball they love to keep the ball and ping it around and a few years uh, into his uh, professional coaching tenure his teams played significantly differently they were a lot more pragmatic and I think the conventional wisdom was that that this is what MLS and the professional level in general will will do to ideologues and so for Nancy to go uh, to to step up onto the dais after. Uh, a playoff uh, series win over atlanta i believe it was or some point during that atlanta series and he said i tell my players the scoreboard doesn't matter you know what matters is that we stick to the to our process and we do w- what we plan to do and that we do what we need to do with the ball as part of our our model uh, i mean that's again that you know that's it would be so easy right to to um to crush that uh, as as sort of pitiful naivete and and here they are now that they, they've hosted a trophy and they did not compromise
0: and uh, this is either going to be a book or the title of the documentary. I've already written Columbus and said, I'd like the rights to the book. I would like to write the book and call it Impossible is an Opinion. <laughs> Those were his words to, uh, I think he first uttered it uh, on, um, on Apple TV in his postgame with, with Katie Witham. And then in subsequent interviews, I think he repeated it a couple of times. I know MFC, they've run a clip where he told Brian Dunseth the same thing. But, again, that's another – that's what he said to the team. Was that prior to MLS Cup, or was that when he joined the the forces of Crew SC? Is that what he said at the beginning? I,
1: I, I hadn't heard it before the, the Kitty Witham interview, although I suspect that that he's probably uttered it more than once um, in the locker room and, and in behind the scenes. Um, but it is very much of a of a keeping with, with everything he said all year and even going back to uh, – to his time in montreal i mean uh, i would remind listeners that when Thierry re left uh montreal and this was considered you know Henri was considered a big get uh f- for the club which is sort of stuck up there in, in quebec in its own sort of little niche that doesn't always get the the big mls spotlight because of being in canada because of the club being in a francophone speaking region and being one of the smaller spenders in more recent years in mls um, but they have an interesting uh, culture and, and thing that they do up there, and, and uh, it was perceived as a lack of ambition when when Nazi was promoted from an assistance post to to replace Henri. Henri had to go back to um, to, to Europe because of the pandemic and being separated. Not only were they were they uh, was he away from his family o- over in Europe, but the the Canadian teams had to be based in the U.S. You know, for months at a time during the pandemic. Right. right. So there was all these factors that led to Henri having to call time. And, um, and no one had heard of this, this Nazi guy, right. When he, um, when he was promoted and then he took the, uh, CFM to their best, uh, MLS season ever last year and took him on a deep playoff run that only a, a very, let's say, pragmatic, uh, performance from NYCFC was able to disrupt that run. And then, uh, Tim Bezbachenko, the president at, at, uh, Columbus who had previously led, uh, Toronto FC to great success is now I think you have to officially give him his flowers as one of the top executives in MLS, if not the one. Uh, saw enough in, in what Nancy did to pay a significant amount, I believe it was low seven figures, to get Nancy out of the last year of his contract in Montreal. Wow. And I think based on everything you spoke about with, with Joy Saputo before, um, when I got to sit down with Nancy during preseason and I was uh, consider myself very fortunate in retrospect to have gotten 30 or 40 minutes one-on-one with him at a, a hotel in Fort Lauderdale back in February, he said, I knew I was going to have to leave eventually, right? And I think he, the, the, the clear message was it's better to leave on your own terms and in the place and time of your own choosing than, than to have to, to deal with a dismissal. Um, and so there was enough there that, you know, the crew invested in this guy. And I think it was not just what he could do with the first team, but also creating something club-wide. And we see this now. The, the crew, uh, a, a big part of what fueled this run to the MLS Cup was having the best-operated second-team uh, in the league with um, reaching the MLS next pro final this year, winning the the championship of MLS next pro last year, promoting, depending on how you look at it, three to four starters or regulars from the second team to the first team squad for this year. And, and, uh, and I think they're doing some really interesting things at the academy level as well. So, um, so if I could interrupt,
0: I've, I've had an extensive extensive conversation with Laurent Courtois, who is their two coach, you know, another French guy, French speaking guy. And he, um, he uh, Number one, something that stood out uh, was that he thought uh, the New York City FC2 team should have been named the team of the year because they utilize, they do what you're supposed to do, utilize the 15 and 16-year-olds, give them experience, and not concern necessarily with results. And he takes the same sort of tact. I remember asking him about defending uh, the championship because I spoke to him um, about mid-season this year, and he said, well... I don't even think about that. And again, another, another guy, you know, somebody could just say that and you go, yeah, sure. But true to form and seeing how some of his players from 2022 contributed in 23, there's definitely a good thing going there. Tim Bezbachenko right now is the executive. Uh, yeah, he's, he's gotta be considered the top guy and it's not just the first team as, as you said, it's from, from top to bottom. So, and I, I know a number of coaches in, in, uh, Montreal, uh, Charles, so they all knew who Nancy was. Uh, many of us maybe didn't didn't have uh, much familiarity. And Montreal couldn't lose this game. Uh, Mark Dos Santos, uh, he, he's got uh, all his. He's from Montreal, and uh, he and Nancy are very close. And he's an assistant for LAFC. And uh, but he got the short end of it this time. I saw they had an extended hug after the game. I'm not sure what Mark said to him, but I'm sure it was complimentary. Yeah, and there,
1: there's real um, there's real Canadian and and francophone uh, fingerprints on both sides. I mean, uh, it's interesting that I don't think LAFC reached this final without some really excellent work on set pieces. And Dos Santos uh, got his flowers from uh, Ryan's Hollinghead, Ryan Hollingshead, I think it was uh, a few games ago, talking about the intense level of detail and and preparation they get from Dos Santos and um, and and who a big part in their goalkeeper, Max Carpoh, Um demanding a trade out of Vancouver and going to LAFC, which was also a big ingredient in their success. And to throw just one more on there, uh, or two more, I Issa tall the assistant GM, is a very respected guy who I think is probably going to move on and run his own team sooner than later from the crew. And then Johan Demay is a, another very respected uh, right. Frenchman right. Who, who was in Cincinnati for a while, uh, was the interim head coach there a couple of times and is on Nancy staff now, and I expect will we'll continue to climb in the in the game and in the league
0: two players i want to focus on uh, one's a former new york city player but first uh, darlington nagby and you tweeted a story that you had published uh, i think a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago i, I can't quite remember it yeah and it, it and in essence it was you you talked about things that i have wondered all along number 1 how he's not been a part of our us men's national team squad i i don't understand. I I just don't. I'm sure there's, there must be some some reasons in there, and maybe you can shed some light on that. But here's Giorgio uh, Chiellini, who announced his retirement today, by the way, uh, the LAFC central back, the Italian legend, uh, talking about Darlington Nagby after the game. And Shane, if you could put up the quote, so if you are watching this, you can read along. Uh, Chiellini about Nagby, I've never faced him, but he is an example for everyone and every player that he's played with. Watching the games of Columbus, you can understand how important he is as a player and as a good leader. He has good value, and he brings you value. He is a hard worker, very generous, and helps all the teammates close to him to play better. I mean, what better midfielder is there in MLS? And you might even say in the United States of America. And and, uh, So shed some light on this, Charles. Why the heck has he not been... Controlling and patrolling the midfield for the U.S. men.
1: It's it is one of the most intriguing, I think, uh, personal stories of of my my life in the game. Uh, you know, writing about this game on a full time basis. Um, and there's a little bit of a, I'm not comparing him as a player necessarily, but the 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 sort of offbeat personality and unique skill set he has. I occasionally find myself thinking of uh, Juan Roman Riquelme, who you know, sort of your favorite player's favorite player, right? A a cult hero for Argentina and for Boca Juniors who somehow never really reached the heights maybe that his talent would seem to to have given him the possibility to in terms of where he played and then the numbers he racked up in Europe. And Nagby's never been to Europe, but he's one guy who everyone who's played with him or against him will tell you this is a rare special player i think he's probably i can easily say the most press resistant midfielder that i've ever seen and probably mls has ever seen um his technical abilities his iq they're all off the charts but his own personal story is that um this is a guy whose dad was a professional player a liberian international um who had to leave liberia and and emigrate to the us and and the kid in his family Darlington, and his and his family grew up in uh in the ohio cleveland ohio suburbs and he, he's, he's a private guy. He doesn't really open up in interviews very often. Um, he can do a media availability without really saying too much of note. Um, but at the few occasions that, that he's spoken freely, he's done some podcasts with fellow players or former players and that sort of thing. And um, this is someone who values family life a lot. And his he's got several kids and um, he values very much being at home with them every night and, and doesn't want uh, to be away for long periods the way that his dad had to be away from him and his childhood. And so that's kind of always informed his professional decisions. You know, he's, uh, he's moved from Portland to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta on to, to Columbus, he's won MLS cups in all three clubs and Ohio is home for him. And he doesn't feel the need to prove himself um, or to prove anything to anyone else uh, by going and playing in the biggest league he can. He simply is as uh you know chosen mls and chosen uh, daily excellence and doesn't want to be anywhere else but columbus and and is going to be there for the long term and doesn't need to be the highest paid player on on the team i believe he's right now a designated player but he, his salary can be bought down if they decide to, to go get another big signing um and and the way he plays too is, is incredible because for so much of his early career in mls um coaches and everyone around him were sort of trying to coax him into this attacking juggernaut because his technical ability clearly uh, seem to be at that level to be an elite attacker, but really where he's found is his zone is, is just running the midfield. He, he doesn't need to be the guy racking up numbers or playing the final pass. He is just the most ball secure um, game regulating type of player that, that exists in this league, I would say.
0: Yeah. Somebody put uh, not a heat map, but one of those uh, maps that show the direction of the passes, the distance of the passes. And it's incredible. There's arrows in every direction and, Every one of those passes, I think, with the exception of two, but then you have some incredible i don't know if it was 92 out of 94 I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but the fact that he you know his passes are multidirectional. but are you suggesting then that it's more his decision maybe not to accept an invitation to the national team versus Greg Burhalter or his predecessors not wanting to include him? I do remember a story once where he turned down an invitation because something was happening, but that so that wasn't an isolated incident. That's really that's really him.
1: Yeah, he has turned down multiple call ups. Um, I believe he's up to twenty five caps for his career or thereabouts. Um, he was on the field for the Cuba disaster, the the two one loss to Trinidad and Tobago, uh, on the last day of twenty eighteen World Cup qualifying. That you know was such a yeah a catastrophic epochal event in the, in the history of the game here. Right. And and to some extent for some people that will always be a mar on his, re- on his resume, um, a, a blemish. But I, I, I think he, and he he's told some of these uh, stories again, in, in you know, one-off settings that um, he didn't feel entirely comfortable or wasn't entirely fulfilled by all the things that national team players have to do. You know, you, you, you add, mileage to your body and, and days and nights away from home to represent your country uh, in far off places, sometimes in difficult places, in, in obscure, out-of-the-way CONCACAF places. Um, he you know, told a story about having to you know, brush his teeth with bottled water in, in St. Vincent uh, for Oracle qualifying there, where it just didn't necessarily feel like, I think, something that he felt intrinsically driven to do. Um, which is again, that's right. That's so different, right? The average professional player is just hardwired to, to, to crave and lust after a a place with the national team. It's, it's a, it's, it's a patriotic experience, but it's also a, a, a sort of a box you're supposed to check if you're an elite player. And I just don't think he has that sense of drive on the same level as most guys, which makes him all the more interesting to me even if it's infuriating to a no, typical national team no, it is.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Jimmy Conrad, he tweeted out, uh, he put uh, Nagby on his MLS Mount Rushmore, which, you know, that's he, he's of high regard. He also won an NCAA championship at Akron to add to his uh, trophy case. So that's uh, that's Darlington Nagby. Now, Malde Amundsen. So this is, you know, quite a story uh, for New York City fans. You know, you're hearing the, the normal and you're seeing it on uh, social media. We let him go, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but for whatever reason, it's worked out better for him in Columbus. Although uh, with New York City FC, um, he had uh, his first year of 2021, they won the MLS Cup. He uh, played in 32 games, started 14 of them, a goal and three assists. He played in the uh, maybe the most important stages of MLS Cup at Portland, the final uh, when he came on as a a, a substitute in stoppage time, so I, uh, the pass he made uh, you know, for the second goal um, was uh, was a thing of beauty and i I saw it I put something out right away because my thought was, I am begging for players out of the midfield to see passes like that more frequently, or for teams to set themselves up off the ball so those passes can be made, baiting the defender. And it seemed like it was all set up. It was something that they had talked about, maybe had even worked on together, him and Yaboa. And uh, what can you say about Malday Amundsen?
1: Yeah, and that's, it's, it's fascinating on so many levels. One, this is the essence of, of success in MLS. Um, and the crew should show that. Yes, they went out and splashed out on Kucho Hernandez. They splashed out to, to, to bring Diego Rossi back to MLS from Turkey. They've made significant investments in off-field infrastructure. Money does matter in MLS. But true success is, hinges on your ability to identify value elsewhere in the league and to maximize the assets that you inherit uh, on your roster. And there's so many examples of that. I mean, uh, Amundsen was, I imagine, for NYCFC when they have they felt they had needs elsewhere in the squad. The crew were in a position where they were they had a, a, a catastrophic injury to Will Sands, who, who was one of their left sided defenders, who, who uh, I believe ironically his
0: uh, a New York City FC
1: academy. Also, product. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, and, and they traded away uh, John Mensa, their, their club captain, the center back and a, a real leader to, to the Earthquakes. So they were short in the back and, and they were really willing to part with a set of assets that NYCFC probably felt they could better apply elsewhere on their squad. Uh, so it's obviously it's, it's, fr- it's probably tough for people like me to to look at these kind of deals in hindsight and question. But the, you can say that about. Minnesota United trading away Christian Ramirez, who who ends up yeah. becoming an MLS Cup champion, and 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 others the other examples around the squad. So, um, so that was I think good management on, on the part of the crew, and also uh, a player like Amundsen really seizing his opportunity in a in a system that I think incentivizes players to be brave. And and Nazi loves that word. He loves to talk about bravery and courage, and. In the eyes of another coach, I think that game-winning assist by Amundsen could easily be branded a Hollywood pass and uh, a waste of possession. Effectively, a turnover, right? You're 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 trying to split the the center back and the and the right back for the opposition with a sixty-yard through ball uh, that in an, in eight out of ten situations maybe rolls out for a a, a goal kick or a, a goalkeeper's easy easy take. Um, But in that moment, and and there's some smart people on Twitter, went back and found other examples of him trying to play that pass. There's clearly a pattern of play that they're rehearsing there. And in general, I think, you know, we don't, this is a generalization, but in the United States, um, a 3-4-2-1 formation is not necessarily a default. It's not something you see a lot of teams try to play. But a lot of the, you know, possession gurus around the world will point to that system as right up there with the Dutch 4 as 3 as a, as a position, as a shape that gives you these opportunities for relationships, triangles, combinations. And the, the crew are not just passing the ball around their center backs and their, their back three uh, to, to, to dominate the possession stats the way they always do. They are circulating to all 10 field players. They're looking for seams, they're probing, they're trying to pull opposing defenses out of position. And there you saw, I mean, Hollingshead has been one of the best weapons for LAFC in these playoffs, but he was exploited and clearly targeted. And Jeff Ruder over at the Athletic did a great uh, at length breakdown after the game of, of, of what the crew did. But they took a, a strength of LAFCs and turned it into a weakness um, by creating those, those different combinations and pulling apart Hollingshead from his center backs and, and isolating him out there on an island with his, uh, his winger, Oliveira, uh, tasked with doing a lot of pressing further up the pitch.
0: Yeah, Jeff's uh, article really uh, points it out clearly. John Rojas, uh, one of my friends and colleagues, who actually uh, was my co-commentator on the MLS Cup uh, at Portland in 2021, uh, the New York City FC Network, uh, he he wanted to make sure. He said, everybody's focusing on the Amundsen Pass, but look at what happened before that. And it's, uh, it's true that... Um, it was uh, it was the, uh, a magical goal done in what you would have to say at least in 2023, the the Columbus way. Now there's a so that's for MLS Cup. Let's pause there. Uh, Don Garber gave his, uh, his state of the league address. Uh, you were there for that. Uh, anything that stuck out to you from from that when when you were listening? Did you go like oh, huh?
1: Yeah. So we were all eager, I think, to see um, what uh, tidbits he might share uh, about the overall state of roster investment. Ever since Messi's arrival in MLS, um, there's been a kind of a litany of CSOs and decision makers and executives basically predicting more, I think, openly on the record than I'm used to hearing that, that there would be significant changes to roster regulations this winter, that, that, that there was a real sense of opportunity that the hype and the tension that Messi generated could, could sort of finally coax an at least a critical mass or voting majority uh, um, over the line to, to open up the purse strings and and maybe be a little bit more aggressive. And remember now we're less than three years away from world cup 2026, which everyone has for years been been pointing to as this uh, watershed moment and this opportunity. And so uh the we got confirmation that there will not be a fourth designated player slot right. uh, which there's there's um there's a there's a cba element to, to all this too right the the players right. union has to sign off on on significant aspects of the the way things are structured but in general the league also has a lot of uh, power to to change this unilaterally right i mean the, the norm has always been that there's a, a significant number of owners that are that are holding back um the 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 purse strings Um, for reasons for competitive reasons for financial reasons and and a combination thereof, so so we didn't get necessarily the money quote from Garber about spending more on players Um, but there was a lot of talk about schedules and I thought I thought he you know sometimes he's speaking off the cuff and sometimes he's dropping easter eggs for us that turn out to have been um, notable often in retrospect Um, and right now we have a metaphor I've used constantly here MLS is facing uh, a a situation with a queen-sized blanket on a king-sized bed right they they want to have a league's cup they don't have this month long tournament with league and McKees in the middle of the season they want to keep to a 34 game regular season with as few midweek games as possible because midweek games always draw less at the gate and are less popular among the fans who actually pack the stadium and remember stadium revenues are still the the right key revenue driver for the league um, but then they also want to, uh, you know, you you want to have uh, a proper preseason. You want to have a proper playoff format. They just expanded the playoffs to give Apple um,
0: more, you know, re- more inventory for for playoff games, which are the most desirable properties. He, he made it pretty clear that the the playoff uh, format is not going to change. Did he not? Yes, well,
1: it, or he's not ready. To or, or he's going to add more games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll you know we'll see, and they and they're. And to some extent, I am sympathetic um, to to Garber and, and, and the board and the, the league executives who make these decisions because they get killed for years for um, for, for playing through international breaks. And yeah. then they um, carve out the November international break in the middle of the postseason to make sure that their top players and top talents are are, are not missing playoff games while on national team duty. And they get killed for that too, right, because it's a big – uh interruption to to the momentum that's generated in the early rounds of the playoffs so there's a little bit of a rock and a hard play situation here but he said you know they 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 don't think they can afford to shut down the league for more than maybe a few days or maybe i I imagine they'll reduce some of the fixtures during the copa america on u.s soil this summer they can't shut down they may be able to shut down in the past they've kind of they've gone dark for for the group stage of the world cup um which is right in the middle of the season but well that Maybe. brings
0: us to that what's going to happen in 2026 now if i correct me if i'm wrong but one reporter uh, uh questioned the commissioner as to whether they might go to uh, an international schedule format and i could i wasn't clear if they meant just for that season or permanently
1: and i believe it was garber brought up in in that context brought up the the Liga MX Apertura Clausura structure which is effectively okay. you, know, you have yeah. two seasons in a year um, Yeah. That that sort of give create two natural pauses rather than, rather than just one, and yeah. I, I was struck that that Garber uh, I I don't I think he was the one who used that specific language unprompted clausura apertura, um, so that was interesting. And then he also sort of mused that possibly um, some kind of offsite event in warm weather locales would be needed uh, to get the games in because right now they're starting in February. I don't know how much further into winter you can start your your season when you know. As it is now, Montreal and Toronto are starting the game, the, the season for a month or more on the road, right? Or Montreal have to go play on bad turf in the enormous uh, Stade Olympique to, to get a home games before April because the pitch right. is frozen until then. Uh, meanwhile, you have uh, 100 plus degree temperatures on a daily basis, uh, or uh, suffocating heat and humidity in the middle of the season in midsummer in, in the Texas uh, cities in in Florida you know, and a lot of other places. So you have extreme heat on one side and extreme cold on the other. And how do you fit the games in? Right. I mean, t- Toronto wants right. to play in the summer. The other, the, a lot of the other cities want to play in spring and fall. So I could see there being some kind of shift uh, and I don't know whether they're going to, you know, draw a line and, and make a big change, or if we're going to see more of a, a gradual evolution to just sort of open up the season and let teams customize their, their fixture balance the way they want.
0: All right, Charles, uh, he's Charles Boehm, uh, MLSsoccer.com, uh, longtime writer uh, on the U.S. game. And uh, I suppose before I let you go, since we have you here, uh, today there were uh, two positions filled in MLS. One, a former New York City guy, Jason Kreiss, he's going back to RSL, Real Salt Lake, where he played and coached, won an MLS Coach uh, t- a Cup as a coach. He was the uh, first-year coach for New York City, and uh, then was sacked after one year. Uh, he's the director of operations and special projects. It appeared uh, that he was assured to be the top assistant under Phil Neville in Portland. In fact, I heard—you know—there were there were people there in high positions that were that were saying, "Yeah, he's yeah, he's coming." Uh, so something happened between two weeks ago and now.
1: Yeah, I can actually report that uh, I've got uh, probably any moment now here at some point this afternoon, uh, I've got a one-on-one with Jason ah. um, that's going to be dropping soon to talk more about his uh, his RSL homecoming. And that was his choice of words. Um, had a really interesting chat with Jason yesterday. He uh, This is a new position. Um, he's going to report directly to club president, John Kimball. And it's going to be a mix of on and off field um, responsibilities, everything from uh, helping streamline the and and speed up the immigration process um, by which players uh, and staff get green cards and and are are moving towards citizenship and and helping wow. with uh, roster designations in, in the long run to helping their academy produce more first team players and and elevate um, more elite talent because that's a, a an academy centered club that has not necessarily had enough kids moving into the first team over the last couple of years. Um, he's going to be a resource for Pablo Mastroeni, who I think whether he liked it or not, Mastroeni has been is being assigned a, a new uh, technical staff with more experience uh, this winter, um, and then he's going to be working on learning the business side of things. Because and this is interesting, I think for NYCFC fans, uh, Christ feels that his um, his experiences at NYCFC and in Orlando drove home for him the importance of having. Um, a coaching staff and a front office and CSO staff um, and a decision-making structure at a club that is fully aligned. And he did not feel that he had that uh, at NYCFC nor at Orlando with, with different changes in the executive level before and during his arrival in those places. And so um, I think that's, that's a big factor in why he's taking this job and he's, he's no longer going to be at least for now, he's not going to be in the, on the coaching carousel. Um, Although he wouldn't explicitly confirm, but he, he, it definitely does seem correct what you say, that he was uh, very likely headed to Portland or at least had an opportunity there. But for him, uh, Utah became home for him and his family uh, while while he was at RSL, and, and this is where they wanted to be, and so now he's he's back there at, our, at
0: Salt Lake. I've talked to him enough to know how much uh, he missed that area of the country. There's a little question of that. And if it comes up or you think of it, just uh, let them know you came on with me uh, it's, uh, and, and say uh, say hi uh, as I uh, prepare to text my congratulations because it's, I know it's great for his uh, family. Dean Smith. So globally, we think of him as the guy who got Aston Villa promoted uh, in 2019 to the Premier League. And uh, now he's the head coach of Charlotte FC
1: yes Uh, and who who had who were clearly looking globally in their search frank lampard was also one of the leading names attached to this vacancy uh i i think they made a a good choice here although the the lingering question remains whether charlotte have the they certainly have international experience right and and um their their uh technical staff executives are are have rich experience of the european game do they have enough mls know-how um, to be able to apply the expertise of someone like Smith to this specific and often peculiar MLX context. So I think that question remains to be seen. Um, he will need to have people around him who can help him navigate the, the quirks of, of this league. But when you talk about someone who can command respect in a locker room, someone who can uh, help with recruitment uh, of international players and help put your club on the map, I think it makes a lot of sense in, in in that regard. And having coached at multiple levels on the pyramid, I think he'll 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 probably arrive here knowing that he's getting into a different sort of ball game.
0: A lot of New York City folks around that story. Christian Latanzio, uh, he was uh, let go uh, in favor now of Dean Smith. And he mentioned Frank Lampard, uh, who uh, got his MLS playing career uh, going in a, in a New York City FC uniform. Well, Charles. Uh, well, good luck with the story. We will look out for it. So, the story on uh, Jason Christ with Charles Bohm, MLSsoccer.com. Thanks so much for hopping on and, uh, and sharing uh, some of your experiences. It was wonderful. Thanks, Charles. Always a pleasure, guys. So, one, this is a week where um, there was some celebration for New York City FC, in as much as uh, on Monday it was the second anniversary of New York City winning MLS Cup. Just a couple of years ago. And uh, there's the celebration after the penalty. You see Chenot. There's Malday Amundsen, now the winner of two MLS Cups. Maxi Morales, who'll come back from a knee injury. Tyler Magno, James Sands. Alfredo Morales, who was so vital for New York City. He recently got his B coaching license, I noticed. Uh, LinkedIn. Ishmael Tajiri who who is a free agent right now. And there's Tati Castellanos, who scored the goal that game to give New York City the 1-0 win, converted his penalty. And Alexander Collins is not in the picture because he's the one that, uh, that scored the goal. But then this, I have to give credit. Kudos to, uh, uh, and I think, Shane, do I have this one? This is the, uh, uh, the Trey Fillmore uh, from uh, Blue Balls Pod, and he put out this thing. I was just going through some things this week. Apparently, we don't have it. Do you No? Okay, I forgot to send it to him. So, Shane, uh, I know I'm, th- we have to cut like this. Just edit this part out right here. Just uh, if you can tag it and edit this part, I'll go right from um, I'll go right from that picture, uh, and then we're gonna go right into kick it, kicking it around. All right, let's go kicking it around. I'm uh, pretty excited that I have a future interview. Uh, the date is not set, but the commitment is there. Uh, Mark Geiger, who is the chief of referees in uh, for pro referees, and that is for Major League Soccer, he took over for Howard Webb. Uh, when Mark, uh, he's a two-time MLS referee of the year, he was the first American to referee uh, in the World Cup. And I bring this up because uh, one of the topics is going to be referee dissent that I have with Mark. And I was uh, tuned into the U.S. Soccer Board of uh, Directors meeting recently. It was a, it was an open meeting. And uh, the topic of referees came up. And the topic of protecting referees was paramount on the minds of the board and how they're going to work on things. And it's certainly a discussion point. And it's the... Um, the one thing that happened uh, in Turkey uh, recently, and let's show the picture of the referee, Halil Umet Meller. You see the black eye, the black left eye. Well, he suffered a punch from the president of the club that lost the match. There you see the punch, the follow through, and you see the referee, uh, Meller, uh, Faruk Koka, who ironically was, uh, was the Turkish Superliga Fair Play Award, or his team did a year ago, 2022. But on this occasion, uh, Ankara Guchu, uh, uh, who lost the match. uh, And that was, that was just a, it's a crazy scene. It's one that is shocking. uh, Yet, it really emphasizes the point that referees do need uh, more protection. No question about it. One other thing I, I wanted to mention here on Kicking It Around was Billion Dollar Goal, it's a a documentary docu-series. It's in three parts, I think. I watched it all last night. I can't remember if it was three or four parts, but it's produced by uh, CBS Sports Galazzo. And the producer is the late Grant Wall. And it's uh, somewhat surreal, but certainly puts a smile on your face as Grant is pictured narrating a a good portion of this. Billion Dollar Goal is Paul Carragere's goal that uh, beat Trinidad In 1989, to push the Americans through to the World Cup in 1990, their first appearance of the World Cup in 50 years, and how that goal helped ignite everything that we see today. And we can say from an MLS standpoint, 29 teams, a 30th joining next year in San Diego, and uh, the beat goes on. But it's a really, really well-done docuseries series. Uh, people like Tony Miola, who was on that team. Uh, there's so many uh, uh, to uh, just tell the stories of what they went through. Tab Ramos, uh, and uh, really interesting. And uh, if you're a soccer fan and you're, you're not familiar, or maybe you are somewhat familiar with the story of that team, uh, please give it a view. It's, uh, it's on Paramount+. Plus. Obviously, that's a subscription service, but maybe there's some way that uh, if you don't have a subscription, go find somebody that, that does and maybe uh, head over to their house or apartment and, uh, and and check it out. It's called Billion Dollar Goal. Well, that's going to do it for me. Thank you so much to Charles Bohm, MLSsoccer.com, who covered MLS Cup and we reviewed a, a lot of great things. And uh, feel well, get better. Roberto Abramowitz. I'll give you the report each week until he's back here co-hosting with me, Glenn Crooks, on NYCFC Views. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the sick podcast NYCFC Views on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.